Hello, I'm Lisa Bien, and welcome to Bouncing Back. This episode is going to be one of our most difficult. Our topic is suicide. People attempt suicide for many different reasons, but it isn't a decision that someone makes lightly, and the effort to rebuild one's life from such a state of despair is a monumental effort. But when life is really all we have, that effort is so important and so necessary. Choosing to live a long life can be a challenge for some. We'd like to help you make that choice a little bit easier today. Let's get started. Hello, I'm Lisa Bien, and welcome to Bouncing Back. God makes a way. <laughs> Be honest and communicate. Honest. Your authentic self is yeah. so critical. Thanks for joining us on this edition of Bouncing Back. First, let's welcome our guest, Drew Bergman. Drew Bergman struggled with depression since seventh grade when his parents separated. The struggle was intense enough that he began to perform self-harm and eventually he attempted suicide twice. After the second attempt, he began to speak about his struggles and depression very openly to help raise the awareness and support for others who were struggling with similar feelings. He even gave a speech at his high school commencement. Today, Drew is a senior here at Temple University, majoring in business and marketing, and he spends his time helping others with their mental struggles, mental health struggles. Thank you for joining us today, Drew. Thank you for having me. Our next guest is Dr. Mary Morrison. She's the Vice Chair of Psychiatry at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine here at Temple University School of Medicine. Among her many interests, she studies psych psychiatric disorders, cognitive and neuroimaging, and neuropsychiatrists drug clinical studies trials. She's joining us today to help us understand how to treat people who are struggling with thoughts of suicide. Okay, well, it's a pleasure to have you, and I apologize for... <laughs> and it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, and I'm very <laughs> glad that you're here. Thank you, and I'm very, very glad that you're here, Drew. Thank you for having I, me. I admire you, all that you've done, and we met and we've talked about this, and I just think that your story is just one that needs to be shared. So thank, thank you for you. being a guest thank on you. our show. So why don't we start with telling us your story? Okay. Um, you know, I grew up, you know, where mental health was not supposed to be a part of my life. I grew up in the American dream household, the nice house, the nice car. It was kind of the ideal family situation. And so this wasn't supposed to be something that would have kind of interrupted my life. And unfortunately it did. Uh, because I was in a house with, you know, underlying struggles of addiction, of depression and anxiety in both my mom and my dad, but it wasn't talked about. And it wasn't until my parents got divorced that I really began to start to feel these intense uh, emotions. I began struggling with anxiety and depression in seventh grade, um, which led to me using self-harm. And for me, self-harm was cutting. Um, and cutting for me was this feeling of control because there were all of these external things in my life that I had no control over. You know, I couldn't control my parents' divorce. I couldn't control my father's alcoholism or the fact that I had to move, but I could control this one thing that I was using every day. But over time, that didn't feel good enough anymore. And so it was when I was 12 years old that I had my first attempt. So what do you mean by it didn't feel good enough anymore? The cutting? The, 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 the release that it was giving me. So cutting is a form of release? It releases. Yeah, so for mm -hmm. some people, 
I'll give it back to mm -hmm. you after this, but for some people, cutting makes them feel better. Mm -hmm. And people don't expect that because, of course, it's for most of us, cutting hurts. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Okay. It, and so we, you started cutting mm -hmm. in seventh grade. Mm -hmm. Correct. Okay. And At, did you cut your, your wrists? I use self-harm on my wrists. And, um, but, yeah, it, do, I call, it is called a coping mechanism because it does release something for people, um, whether it makes sense to everybody. Right. Um, but well, it's the first I'm learning about it. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, it's, so to me. It seems like from an outside perspective, like why would somebody ever do that? But for me, it was, it was a sense of relief, uh, released endorphins for me. Uh, but over time, self-harm just wasn't enough and it wasn't, um, it wasn't giving me the feeling that I needed. And I was feeling so sad and so depressed during that time that is why I attempted suicide when I was 12. When you were 12, that was your first attempt. Mm -hmm. And can we back up a little? Did mm -hmm. your parents know you were cutting? So my mother was aware of my self-harm and she uh, had taken me to our family practitioner when I was uh, in seventh grade. And the family practitioner had was not well-versed when dealing with mental health issues. And I think this is something, because in our society it is highly stigmatized and something that people often have a tough time talking about. And he didn't know how to have this conversation with her. And um, he, it was a really unpleasant experience. Uh, he really told my mom to go home and look and see what doctors were covered or under insurance. And, you know, had my, my mom always said, had my child had cancer or any physical health issue, we would have gotten him the best care that he needed. Uh, but because this was a mental health issue, he kind of escort, escorted her out the door. And uh, that was really hard for somebody that had first seen these struggles when it was manifesting for their, in their child. And um, so that was definitely a challenge for her. And she didn't know what treatment I needed. She didn't know what treatment was out there uh, because there wasn't this world of knowledge uh, surrounding this topic. Um, so after my first attempt, she did do a lot of research and she found you know, a very intensive outpatient therapy group. And um, it, it was working, but I wasn't, I wasn't very engaged in it. I always say I wasn't like an active participant in my therapy. I was kind of just going through the motions. Um, and so things- And looking back at it, can you say why? I think I wasn't connected with who I was seeing. I wasn't- uh -huh. um, I think like, that's such an important and component when, of therapy. And when I speak today, I always say therapy is like dating. The first person you go on a date with isn't the one that you always marry. Typically, I mean, I look at who I first dated, and, right. and that's not who I'm, you know. But that's an excellent point. I think that everybody really mm -hmm. should need needs to remember because I remember when I started even going to see a therapist. He said, "Well, we're going to meet and talk," and I said, "Well, why?" He said, "Because I want to see if I'm right for you and if you're right for me." So mm -hmm. I think that's an excellent point for everyone to really remember if you're mm -hmm. struggling with any type of mental mental illness. That it's key to find the person, the that, person really that works for you. you. So sorry to interrupt, but no. I just want to make sure we cover everything. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and so I did, you know, slowly make it through seventh and eighth grade and, you know, began high school at an all-boys Jesuit high school in Philadelphia, St. Joe's Prep. And that was what I was hoping would be my restart button. You know, uh, that it was a new school, that it meant a new start. And uh, unfortunately, you know, as we as adults know that just because you go to a new school or because you move doesn't mean that your life starts over and that whatever you dealt with prior to that stays with you. Um, 
And so I was really having a tough time in high school academically, socially, uh, just not really acclimating to the new environment. Uh, were you still cutting when you were in high school? I, I was not okay. self-harming, um, but I was still really struggling with my depression. Um, I was not joining any clubs, I wasn't playing any sports, and I was an athlete, uh, but I just didn't have that motivation to do anything. Can, can mm -hmm. I ask you, since I'm a psychiatrist, mm -hmm. had you seen a psychiatrist? I had been on medication, mm -hmm. um, when I, especially when I was in seventh grade, and there were some complications with those medications that made me and my family a little resistant towards then trying another medication. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? Because that yeah. that is a real issue. Mm -hmm. First of all, people are very hesitant to mm -hmm. try medications, mm -hmm. understandably. Yeah. And then, unfortunately, the side effects usually come before the benefit. Um, and so, unfortunately, when I, when I was in seventh grade in self-harming, um, the medication that I was prescribed, uh, one of the side effects was to um, have increased suicidal ideation for children under the age of 18. Um, the psychiatrist prescribed me this medication and that escalated my suicidality. Um, so for me, um, now obviously this was, you know, my parents had a say in this as well, but I, I, you know, having had such a negative experience with it that first time, I was very cautious to take medicine again. Um, now medicine is still something that plays a crucial role in my life today. I still take medication every morning. Um, but it's a medication that really we've been able to w make sure that it works for me. Um, and so, you know, that is definitely something that is over time became a very crucial part of my recovery. Um, but uh, during this time in high school, I wasn't taking medication. So you're in high school and you're not taking any medication mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or, and you're not doing physical harm anymore, mm -hmm. but you're still suffering from depression mm -hmm. and anxiety. Were you seeing a counselor at this point? I was seeing someone, but not as frequently as I should have. Um, but I was, I was really isolating. I was, uh, as I said, not joining any clubs or playing any sports. I wasn't eating properly. I wasn't getting enough sleep. Things that are really right. important for a, a person's mental health. Um, and Can I ask how frequently were you seeing the counselor? That was my question. It wasn't. It was. I would say once every two to three weeks. Uh huh. Um, I should have been in therapy once a week. And um, did the counselor want you to be in weekly therapy? She didn't. Wasn't like demanding that it was. Uh -huh. I think one. Some of the challenges that I was facing at this time was I was in high school, an hour and twenty minutes away from my home. Uh -huh. um, I was in school from six thirty every morning to seven thirty at night. Um, so it was very challenging to negotiate how therapy would fit into that schedule. Sure. Okay. I hate to interrupt you, but I'm going to do it real quick. We're going to take a break here. We're going to continue our conversation about bouncing back from attempted suicide when we come right back.
Welcome back. We're talking about bouncing back from attempted suicide with our guests, Drew Bergman and Dr. Mary Morrison. So we have been a lot to still cover. So <laughs> <laughs> we were yeah. talking about your high school years. Yeah. You were in high school. You were seeing a psychi a psychologist, not a, a psychiatrist, a therapist, a therapist. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, but not as frequently as I should have been. I wasn't taking the medication that I, you know, really should have looked into. And uh, so naturally things were continued on a decline for me. And uh, it was winter break of my sophomore year that I really hit my rock bottom. Um, and I still to this day attribute it to three main reasons that I really feel ha were at the core of where I was at. And one of them was being that I do struggle severely with seasonal affective disorder. Uh, the wintertime is very challenging for me. Um, That's a serious issue. Yes, it right. is. That's a very serious issue. Yeah. How many people would you say in this country really do? I hear people talk about it a lot, and they, they make it sound like it's not. Like, oh, it's the winter blues. But it's really a, a mental illness, correct? Yes, yes. And it's treatable, you know, both mm -hmm. with antidepressants, um, you know, if it's a depressive disorder, um, or light. Light, yeah. I, like, we, when, when we engaged in recovery, we actually had a light in the house oh. for... Um, but th that time we didn't. Um, the second thing of it was, uh, for me, holidays have been really challenging. I always think holidays are stressful e for anyone. <laughs> they um, really are. <laughs> but let alone for, for a child that's growing up in a divorced family. Added stress, because mom and dad want you both and it's a big fight who you're gonna spend the holidays mm -hmm. with. And I know, it's difficult. And you know, you look at all these other families and they look so happy and you're like, this isn't my family. And then, the third thing was, and I think everybody is able to relate to this on some level, is that I'm a person that depends heavily upon a schedule, a routine every day. Uh, but over breaks, winter break or summer break, when we're not in school, we have no routine, no structure. And so uh, that was really challenging for me. Um, and I always talk about my second crisis. Uh, I always say that when someone is experiencing a severe mental health crisis, when they're looking at suicide as a way out, that they're looking at their entire life through the perspective of a drinking straw. Um, and so when I speak, I have you know kids kind of think about this idea of a drinking straw um, because all they're able to see is what they're feeling in that moment, the pain and the sadness that you're feeling in that moment without the ability to take that step back and to look at the bigger picture and look at the, you know, things will be better tomorrow. And how do we, how do we teach people in general to look at there's a lot of people in this world that are dealing with anxiety depression mm -hmm. seasonal disorder I mean three things we just talked about mm -hmm. how do we get that how do we make that change well I think for people who are relatively healthy um, you do it by reassuring them but you know Drew it sounds like you were pretty ill at that mm -hmm. time and, oh, and there you can't you can't teach it you have mm -hmm. to help them through it you and can. use the other tools because literally they you can tell them Any. as many times as you want and they that can't see they it. can't see it and that was for me I was with my family that night till you know till it was on New Year's Eve your second suicide mm -hmm. attempt was on New Year's mm -hmm. Eve so you were with your family that night mm -hmm. they couldn't tell I guess the average family can't tell right I no, I think everybody has a different uh, yeah. story. I think, you know, there are, you know, times where people that talk about it and say they want to do it, there's people, 
you know, it's I read a for statistic everybody. once. I read a statistic for the show that said at least one person says it every time in the course of their life. Mm -hmm. But actually, what's the number? Uh, we said 40,000 mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. a year actually attempt suicide. They die by suicide. They die by then, suicide. Um, and so, yeah, I, when I talk with my mom, she said that, you know, I used to make indirect cues of saying, I'm just tired of feeling this way. I'm, I'm sad. I'm, I'm tired of being sad. Um, but there was no indication that night. And I, because I, I talked with my brother and he's like, why didn't you just come, you know, and say something to me? And for me, it wasn't that easy. It wasn't just like, hey, you know, brother, I'm not feeling great. It right. was, I, I was ready to end my life. And what was it about that night? It was really indicative that I just didn't want to live to see another year. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to live to see 2000, 2010. Um, and that was it for me. Um, and so that was my second attempt on January 1st. 2010, 2010, around 5 o'clock in the morning. And who found you? Um, my mom, and she had the ambulance come. Uh, I was rushed to a hospital and transferred to two different psychiatric hospitals where I spent 16 days. Um, and that was a point in which I realized that I couldn't go any lower, one, and that two, my actions were having an impact on the ones around me. Because as I said, you know, with that straw perspective, I genuinely, genuinely believe that if I died by suicide that it would only end my life and that it wouldn't have an impact on anybody around me. And not only that, that it would actually make their lives easier because they wouldn't have to deal with me anymore. Do you hear that? Yeah, that is the problem with suicidal people mm -hmm. is when you remind them that mm -hmm. they're part of, you know, a family or a group mm -hmm. who loves mm -hmm. them they're sort of surprised and they say exactly what you said, but I'm trying to relieve their burden. Mm -hmm. But of course, if you talk to the family of somebody who suicided, uh, you know, they walk around with, you know, an empty hole, you know, for the rest of their lives. I hear a lot of times people say, oh, that was so selfish of that person. And to me, it was like the least selfish thing I could have done because I was, I thought that I was helping my family. Right. Well. Thank you for sharing your story. We're actually thrilled that you're here to tell Thank your you. story. Yeah. It's Thank very you. brave. What, what it is. It is very brave um, because it's not talked about. And you know, I mean, one of the big not talked about things too is you know, doctors have a very high suicide rate. Um, so, for the people who are watching today, what advice would you give for someone who's watching the show right now and saying, "Wow." I feel like I feel like Drew does. I mean, we've all had days where we feel down and out, but we were talking about some serious mm -hmm. anxiety and and not wanting to be here. What advice would you give for that person who's watching the show right now? Yeah, so uh, I mean, I and I think people can probably tell the difference between day-to-day -day struggles and really struggling to the point of, you know, really suffering, impairment, you know, not being able to do their, you know, activities or having recurrent suicidal thoughts. And really, you, you wanna get a mental health professional. And if it's an emergency in Philadelphia, there are psychiatric crisis centers, they're open seven days a week. If it's not an emergency, you know, get yourself to care. If, if you know, you're part of the temple community, we have mental health services, there are 
um, you know, they dedicate themselves to trying to get students in, you know, very quickly. And of course, we have a department of psychiatry, there's a psychology department, and we have a whole city, you know, full of therapists and psychiatrists. Um, in, in general, just like your story, although primary care docs, um, mm -hmm. most mental health is given by primary care docs, they're not, they're not very comfortable. They're better trained than they used to be. Mm -hmm. Um, but they're still it's not very comfortable. It's a start. I always say they're specialists for a reason, right? Mm. <laughs> so we have a few minutes before we have to wrap up, yeah. but what would you say to somebody who's watching the show? Because you do an awful yeah. lot of speaking, yeah. something you're really passionate about. You really want to make a difference, and mm -hmm. you are making a difference every day. Just by being here today is a huge difference, so I thank you. But what would you say to somebody who's watching the show and maybe thinking about suicide? As hard as things seem in that moment, as much as you feel like things will never get better, to remember to try to take that step back, just one step back, and to look at the bigger picture. Um, because things will get better. They always will. Um, like Two years after my second attempt, I stood up in front of my entire high school and spoke to 1,200 kids. Or not two years, one year after. Um, I went from a place of not wanting to live to then standing in front of all of my peers and talking about it. Um, things will get better and there are people and there are resources out there that can get you the help that you need. Um, you just need to take that step and to reach for help. Um, and that would be my biggest advice to anyone listening. Well, thank you so much for joining to us today and we're just going to say thank you for joining your insights today. There are more than 42,000 Americans that attempt suicide every year. It is the 10th leading cause of death in the country and yet so few of us know what to look for when it's happening. It's important for us to try to be compassionate with one another whenever possible. Some people can be seen struggling while others will put a brave face on. Just one person showing concern at the right time can help someone else find strength to move forward. At the same time, acts of cruelty and apathy towards someone else who is suffering can trigger and lead them to choose life isn't worth the struggle. We all, we all, every single one of us have a responsibility to help everyone feel that they have a safe and welcome place for them in the world. Once again, I'm Lisa Bien, and I will see you next time on Bouncing Back. Hello, I'm Lisa Bien, and welcome to Bouncing Back. God makes a way. <laughs> Be honest and communicate. Honest. Your authentic sound is yeah. so critical.